Welcome to the Preach and Persuade podcast. I'm Sam Parada. I'm Adam Neswald. And we are in part two of our treatment of Perseverance of the Saints, which is the last doctrine in our series on the doctrines of grace. So you could say it's a five-part series, but some of these doctrines, especially, well, only election and Perseverance of the Saints, now we have split up into multiple Mm -hmm. because they tend to be hotly debated and, and there's, yeah, a lot to say on them. So hopefully you listened to the first part of Perseverance of the Saints, but if you haven't, then what we are going to be doing in this second part is really discussing and interacting with what we would call the, or what people would call the problem passages on this doctrine. So, you know, we believe that if God saves you and and elects you and changes your heart and gives you faith and gives you righteousness and paid for your sin on the cross, then He will persevere per, persevere in your I can't even say it persevere you in your faith and bring you all the way to the point of glorification. He will do this. Uh, you will be saved. He will perfect the good work that He started in you. He he or nobody can snatch you out of his hand. Like, it is certain. He saves you to conform you to the image of Christ. He doesn't just save you to leave you on your own. So, there's a there's some passages, though, that people find in Scripture, and they want to say, well, doesn't this teach that you can lose your salvation? And those are what we would call the problem passages. And that's the case with a lot of things, though. There's a lot of things in Scripture that if you just take, if you just literally pluck out a, passage or a couple verses or a verse, you're going to find that you can misconstrue this to mean a whole assortment of things, a whole lot of things. Like think about all the cults and all the wonky like eschatologies and all these heresies that people somehow figure out a way to tie into the scriptures. Like prosperity preachers and prosperity gospel, they somehow find scriptures to justify their their claims. Mm -hmm. Like Crazy things, crazy things, and, and and Peter said himself about in Scripture about the Apostle Paul's writings that some people misconstrue them and twist them and sh- and you know make them say what they want them to say and that they're hard to understand sometimes. So there is this reality that this happens. So that's why we have such things as you know I'm doing quotations, problem passages. They're not a problem. That's the point. They're not a problem. The, not the, when handled hermeneutically correctly. Exactly. When, when we take into account hermeneutical principles, and I say hermeneutical principles, and you're probably wondering, what the heck does he mean by that? Like, Hermeneutics is the art of biblical interpretation, the science and art of biblical interpretation. So we have this, this, this Bible, this Word of God, and, it, and God has revealed truth, true truth, truth to us propositionally. In writing, in language. So we read the Bible, and there are true things being revealed, told to us. We have to interpret them. Part of the barriers to correctly interpreting the Scripture is that, one, the scripture Scriptures were written in foreign languages to what we are familiar with. They were written in—Old Testament was written in Hebrew and some Aramaic, uh, and then the New Testament was written in Greek. Most people don't know how to read Hebrew or Greek, and— uh, 
and they're also written in contexts, in historical contexts that are very different than ours. Like the culture two to 4,000 years ago was way different than it is now. Their customs were different. The way they did life was different. The way they earned money was different. Like things were different. So there's just this reality that there are barriers to to us easily coming to the true meaning of a, of a text because there there is a real meaning in the text one meaning in a text that God has given to us to know so this isn't postmodernism we there isn't an infinite amount of interpretations for a text there is one correct interpretation that God has put in the text for us to know. So we use hermeneutical principles to find that, discover that, come to the true meaning put in the text for the audience, and then we apply it to our life today. And that's what a good sermon should do. Mm -hmm. It should take a text, it should exposit the text, so figure out what is being said here, what is God telling us in this passage, what is that truth that he has put in there for us to know, and we have to figure that out for what was, let's say, when Paul was writing to the the book of Romans, to the Romans, like, what did he mean to say f- to them? And once we figure that out, what he meant to say to them, then we can figure out, okay, how does that apply to us now 2,000 years later? And that's application. So part of hermeneutical principles are being able to read the original language. Most people can't. Uh, there's good tools to help us mm-hmm. overcome that barrier, though. Uh, dictionaries and things like that. Or you can learn the language, or you can rely on your pastor, who should know the language. Uh, there's there's simple logical ones, uh, and we've talked about this a lot, like uh, interpreting explicit passages with, or using explicit passages to interpret implicit passages. Uh Clearly understanding, clearly understood passages, and we use those to interpret hard to understand passages. We know there's an overall coherence with Scripture. God doesn't contradict Himself. That's a logical thing that we, you know, use to help us understand. So if there's two passages that surface level, take them as they're as they are, seem to contradict each other. There is no contradiction. I'm misunderstanding one of them or both of them. Mm-hmm. That's the point. Yeah. So we've already laid out in the first, and there's a, there's other principles too, but this isn't a, a podcast right now currently on hermeneutical <laughs> principles. Uh, maybe one day we will do that. <laughs> one of those Write things I add to the list. <laughs> uh, but, oh man, what was I going to say? But Okay, yeah, th- this is what we said. So the first, the first podcast on Perseverance of the Saints, the last episode, uh, we laid out, we did a scripture proof of some of the places in scripture, we definitely didn't hit all of them because there's a lot of them, where it, it pretty much explicitly states that you can't lose your salvation. No, There's explicit texts that say you can't. Not only that, but if you understand rightly the doctrine of justification, it's inconceivable to think that you could. Inconceivable. It's inco- It does not fit with the rest of the theological push of Scripture. How God has told us how he has saved us, losing your salvation does not fit into that. It's incoherent with it. It's outside of that. It doesn't make sense. So we have that, and we have explicit texts that say 
You can't. Okay, awesome. So then, what do we do with the texts that make us think that, may, hey, maybe you can lose your salvation? So using our hermeneutical principles, logic, okay, either I have, one, there is no contradiction. So either I'm misinterpreting the texts that say you can't lose your salvation, and therefore misinterpreting all the texts that tell us how we're saved, or I'm misinterpreting this problem text that makes it seem like you can. Or I've misinterpreted all of them. But that's not a possibility here because we know that somebody's saved. We know that the Bible teaches that people are saved. Mm -hmm. And the question, therefore, is two options. Can you lose it or can you not lose it? So I'm either I'm t interpreting one of those texts wrong. Mm -hmm. And it must fit that I'm interpreting the text that says you can lose your salvation wrong because of how the Bible clearly teaches we are saved. So before we even looked at the text, I've already shown you that those texts can't be interpreted that way. <laughs> but nonetheless, Let's we're going about them. We're going to talk about them because we're not. I'm not afraid of them. And one, they're scripture. Mm -hmm. So there's something actually really there for us to know and believe. Right. There's a true meaning there, but it's not. It's the meaning that you can lose your salvation is not in the text. That is something you have put on the text outwardly. You have ascribed this meaning to the text. It's called, uh, what's it called? Eisegesis. Right. Not exegesis. You haven't, you haven't discovered or pulled out the meaning from the text. You've put the meaning on the text. Mm -hmm. Because you come with these preconceptions because of your feelings. Okay. Now we're going to interact with the problem passages. But I found an article online. I'm going to read it for you guys. Uh... Like, I just typed in on Google search passages that say you can lose your salvation. And I think one of the first results was an article. Uh, I don't know who these people are. It's Come, to Re Come Reason Ministries. So if you're Come Reason Ministries, I'm reading an article from you. Uh, the article itself, the person, I'm pretty sure, uh, who is Come Reason Ministries or is writing on this, lands on the side that you can't lose your salvation, like we've already said. But this person is interacting with a person that wrote into him or emailed him and basically said, does not the Bible teach us that we can lose your salvation? So I want to read, I want to read from the, or this guy's question because he lists out a bunch of passages that he sees as, as evidence that you can lose your salvation. So we're going to just kind of go through his list a little bit here. Kind of has an extensive list, so we might get not get to all of them, but we really want to hit on the biggest ones, if that makes sense. But he says this. I'm just going to read what he says. First, let me compliment you on your website. Very clean and neat. Okay, so, yeah, comereason.org is very clean and neat. <laughs> Here's a couple of thoughts for the what it's worth department on the question about Hebrews 6. So Hebrews 6, we'll get to that, is one of the biggest problem passages. Being difficult to reconcile with a once saved, always saves, saved viewpoint. What about if you just read it as it is and accept it as such? Interesting. The writer of Hebrews is not attempting to write some kind of crypto-Greek for his readers, then and now, to struggle with and try to figure out how this Greek word or that Greek phrase could be translated to support what we think the passage means. The writer of Hebrews was simply writing a sermon to the Jews and trying to get his point across. 
doesn't it seem rather unlikely that we should all have to go through all sorts of literary and mental gymnastics to try and come up with the meaning of these difficult verses? Instead, let's just accept them at face value as the holy word of God. I would suggest to you that the Bible does not teach eternal salvation, although it sure would be nice if it did. The Bible warns Christians that they can fall from grace. Galatians 5, 1-5, be cut off from salvation, Romans 11, 18-22, have their names removed from the Lamb's Book of Life, Revelation 22, 19, by committing certain sins and not repenting of them, Ephesians 5, 3-5, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Galatians 5, 19, Revelation 21, 6-8, in a chilling reminder of the possibility of losing salvation by separating oneself from Christ, Paul says, I drive my body and train it for fear that, after having preached to others, I myself should become disqualified, 1 Corinthians 9.27. Here are a couple of additional passages that pretty much spell out the fact that one can lose one's salvation. Matthew 6.15, Matthew 19.21-35, Matthew 10.22-32, Luke 12.41-46, 1 Corinthians 15.1-2, Colossians 1.22-23, Hebrews 3.6-14, Revelation 2.10-25-36, and 3.1-5, 2 Peter 2.20-22. These passages give a pretty strong witness to the fact that we can fall away and if we do not repent and come back to Jesus, we could suffer the consequences for all eternity. Anyway, you asked for thoughts, so these are mine. Let me know how, how they sit with you. Sincerely, sincerely, William. And then the guy responds. I actually haven't read his response, but I'm pretty sure he probably addresses it pretty well. But he, he's, I, start, I read the first paragraph of the guy's response, and he starts out by explaining some hermeneutical principles. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, just first of all, I, I don't know all of those references off the top of my head, but Revelation 3, 1 through 5 is a portion of a letter that's written to a church that Jesus Christ describes as spiritually dead. Yeah. It, it has nowhere in that passage does it say that people in that church were saved and then were not saved. Jesus says that they are dead in that passage and then goes and then Jesus goes on to say that within your church I will come like a thief in the night if you do not repent I will come like a thief in the night and I will take those among you who are mine the few that there are yeah. into eternal life. Yeah. But nowhere in that passage does it say that there were people who were spiritually alive and are now spiritually dead. That is a apostate church, the church of Sardis. Yeah. So here's the issue with his this guy's hermeneutics. He says, doesn't it seem rather unlikely that we should all have to go through all sorts of literary and mental gymnastics to try and come up with the meaning of these difficult verses? Instead, let's just accept them at face value as the Holy Word of God. That's the problem right there. Right. He's taking every passage and, and one, he's not connecting it to the context of the passage. Mm-hmm. So he's taking all these these thoughts, sentences, and taking them literal and just as it says. And the problem that he's going to face is if he takes every passage of God, these texts, literal and just accept them at face value, then he's going to find that he's going to have to accept the verse, the passages that we have already stated are explicitly saying you can't lose your salvation at face value, and then he's going to come into a dilemma. Yeah. Well, not not only that, you can't take every passage of the Bible exactly. Which I want to stress that, like, as an overarching principle, if you were to generalize how to interpret the Bible, yeah, like, yes, you should always aim to start from a literal perspective, and then look for 
signs of metaphor, simile, or prophecy in which, yeah. uh, you know, visual illustration is used. But, like, in passages that we've read before where Jesus says, I am the shepherd, Jesus was never a shepherd. Right. Ever. Right. That was not his job. Well, there's, like, I mean, there is so much figurative language in Scripture. Right. So much. So much figurative language. I mean, the list could go on and on and on. We could talk about figurative language for hours and hours and hours and hours if we wanted to. And we all know that figurative language is a thing we use. We use it today in English all the time. Paul used it a lot. Paul used it a lot. We use figurative language. We use symbolism. We use metaphor. We use simile. We use hyperbole all the time. To prove a point, it serves a purpose, and it helps us grasp something in a way that maybe we were not able to grasp if it was just laid out in a very literal, maybe you could say dry sense. Mm-hmm. So we love liter- figurative language, and it helps us understand things. It's 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 something everybody has used, and yeah. it's a literary style. Now, the question is, okay, what do I take literal, what do I don't? Well, one, there's a lot of clues throughout Scripture what is not literal and what's literal. Uh, Jesus says, I am the door. Like, right. what, is he actually a door? Like, he says a lot of things. I am mm. the shepherd. I am the door. I am the way. You know, like, we understand what that means. Mm-hmm. We understand what that means. We don't even have to think about, I wonder if I should take that actually literally. But then we come to a, you have your preconceptions or your pre-ideas or your, what you want to find in Scripture. So then you, you tend to take passages that shouldn't be taken literally, and then you take them literally to prove your point. But you came in into it already knowing what you want to find. Right. And you can find it. So we use hyperbole all the time, like all the time, metaphors all the time, similes all the time. So do the authors of Scripture. Are they not, do they not have the right to use figurative language? Now there are certain figures of speech that we use today that have, that would have no, especially like, okay, let's think of an American Western, English-speaking culture, we use certain things that would have no... Under, like, people in different culture, especially in a different time and of a mm-hmm. different language, have no under, understanding of what we mean. Cats out of the bag. Yeah. Like, what the heck does that mean? Or it's raining cats and dogs. What do you mean by that? What? <laughs> like, what, it's raining cats and dogs out? There's so many figures of speech that we use um, that just are so culturally define like Mm -hmm. so there are certain elements of scripture that the figures of speech that are being used would would be something that the original audience would have understood that's why you know this guy says why do we have to do mental gymnastics to try to figure out these difficult passages why can't we just take them at face value well because we're separated culturally by two thousand years from some of these passages an audience that had an understanding of, of, of things that we do not have. So we do indeed, in some sense, in some passages, have to do mental gymnastics, mm-hmm. if that's what you want to say. But we have the resources. We have the ability. But a lot of people just want to be lazy. You can study the, the ancient cultures. There's resources to do that. And do it if you have the time. It will be greatly beneficial. But that's what we pay pastors to do. Right. That's why there is such thing as a seminary education where you spend years of your life in intensive study of the scriptures, of their original language, of the history, of of the 
historical context around passages, and we study this, and we, you know, that's why there's a sense that, you know, I mean, obviously there's a lot of bad pastors out there. Right. And that's the hard part, is even a guy that does get an education can still be an heir. And there's a lot of bad seminaries out there. But nonetheless, there is a sense like, I trust the doctor who has went to school for a long time to diagnose me and do surgery on me. I don't trust my mom. Like, mom, can you do this surgery on me? Mm-hmm. No, I trust the doctor because he has the training and the education. Yeah. So there's a sense that we have to trust our the people, our pastors and stuff on some of these things. But a lot of them are actually very, if you just took into account into account context of a passage, you wouldn't fall into this error. So let's look at him. He gave yeah. us a he gave us a wonderful list. Well, he st- it started with Hebrews six. He right? started out with Hebrews six. Hebrews six is the is the biggest one, the big one that if you are struggling with these texts, you've probably come across Hebrews six and wondering what on earth. So we are going to look at it, and just because of time, I lo- I doubt we'll get it to all the passages that he listed yeah. off. But you'll find that most of them are pretty like... Oh, we've already talked about one of them. Like, what? Like, how do you even think that even says anything about having or not having your... Or, like, losing Mm -hmm. or not losing your salvation has nothing to do with that. Okay, I gotta find Hebrews 6 here. Just a second. In my Bible, you can probably hear the pages turning. Man. I tell you what. Hebrews is one of those books that often eludes me. There it is. Good grief. Thin pages. Okay. I'm going to start just in the very beginning of Hebrews 6, and we'll naturally run into the problem passage. You'll probably hear it when we get to it. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of uh, instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits, for it is impossible. Here we go. Here it is. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, holding him up to contempt. We'll stop there. So, it's face value as it is. Huh. This does seem hard to understand. How do I treat this? What is actually being said? And if you don't have an extensive understanding of scripture and if your theology isn't uh well developed you could take this as a meaning you could lose your salvation i get it and probably at one point in my life i probably thought this taught that as well mm-hmm. but let's just walk through it and i'll get to a point at the very end where we'll read past the verse where i stopped where then we start to get the clarity and that's why it's so important to get the context so for it is impossible 
we can we can take certain things as literal. For it, it is impossible in the case of those who have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift. So we so he starts off with this list, but he says it's impossible. We can take that literally. It is impossible to restore this person that he's talking about or describing. But is he describing? This question is: Is the author of Hebrews describing something that had true, real saving faith? Is he describing someone that had been justified, that had their sin put on Christ, who? has the righteousness of Christ imputed to them through faith. He never uses the, uses the word justified. First no, off. he uses the word enlightened, which is... Definitely not... Right. It is right. not, like, not even... It's never thing. used in a salvation context, the word yeah. enlightened, throughout Scripture. So, once enlightened, have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, having tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. Okay, so, the person that we will use to describe this type of person is Judas Iscariot. Clearly. Mm-hmm. Very clearly a Judas-type man. And we even haven't even talked about Judas yet. So, Judas is a man, again, who was a disciple of Christ, one of the twelve, who spent three years side-by-side side with Christ. And if you want to go through the list, he would... He would Check off all these things. He had been enlightened. He had been. He had tasted the heavenly gift. He had shared in the Holy Spirit. The working of the Holy Spirit and the life of Christ and the life of the disciples. He was witnessing that. He was a part of that because he was with people that had the Spirit. He was with people that he was with people. He was with God. He was with God. Yep. Like good grief. He interacted with God. He. I mean, good night. He kissed God. He betrayed Jesus with a kiss. He kissed God in the flesh. Like, talk about being close to somebody and not being saved. It's Judas. Tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. He witnessed Jesus raise people from the dead. He witnessed Jesus do the most miraculous things. Witnessed it. Saw it. Knew it was real. Had no doubt in his mind that this was real. But what did he do? He betrayed Jesus for money. He was greedy. Mm-hmm. And we see in other places in Scripture that he would steal from the money bag. He was the treasurer of the group, was in charge of you know, keeping the money that the disciples and Jesus used on their journeys, and he would steal from it. So he was greedy. He desired the riches of the world more than Christ. Judas was never regenerated. He never he was never saved, mm-hmm. ever. And he, he, he was part of the 12 to fulfill prophecy. And, and Jesus knew he was never saved. Because, you know, at the Last Supper, he knew that there's one among you that, yep. you know, is going to betray me. He knew this. He knew this the whole time. It was to fulfill prophecy. So this is clearly describing a Judas-type person. And we've all, we know people like this. These are, the, these are the people that we go... You know, the, the, the pastors that we have seen in lately in America, that notable pastors that also renounce the faith and turn away from Christianity. They're like, like this type of person. They're certainly around people who are true Christians, so they are certainly a part of the experience of, of people coming to faith, of seeing the Holy Spirit do real work in real people's lives. They're certainly a part of... The word of God changing people and they're, you know, they might even be the one preaching it and they're dead, but the word of God has a power in and of itself to change a heart. 
So they're witnessing these things and they're actually kind of a part of it in some way. But then they turn away. It's not because they lost their salvation. It's because they never had it. Right. And how do we know that? How do we know that the context tells us that? Well, one, if we go back earlier in Hebrews, especially Hebrews 3, 14, other passages, we get texts that say you can't lose your salvation. But in this immediate context, if we just read past this problem passage, if we just read past it, we see a context that makes us understand that this is not what it's saying. And we'll start in verse 7. So I, I left off in verse 6, starting in verse 7, it says, For land has drunk the rain, for land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So here you have a clear picture of what is actually happening. So Jesus is, or the, not Jesus, the author of Hebrews is giving us an example, uh, a picture, an illustration of what he, of the type of person he's talking to, and he, uh, talking about, and he's talking about a person who is, in this illustration, is uh, land, is a field, let's say, and this rain falls on this field. The rain is the word of God. It's it's the Holy Spirit. These things, like. Uh, it's what the what he just described, like these experiences he's been describing. The land has fallen on that field or that land, and when it falls on that field and that land, the word of God, the person who's truly saved it, it bears fruit. It there's a, there produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, and they receive a blessing from God. That's the true believer. But then he says, but if it bears thorns and thistles. It is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So, the author of Hebrews is not saying that it once bore good crops, useful, and now it bears thistles. It's He's making the distinction that at the very beginning, it always bore thorns and thistles. And it's worthless. So, that's that type of person. They never were saved. They're bearing thorns and thistles. Because the word of God to change somebody, to sanctify somebody, to affect change in them, they have to be regenerated. The word of God bounces off of a rock hard heart, mm-hmm. so there needs to be a, f- a fleshly heart. And then we go on in verse 9, which really wraps it up nicely. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. There we go. Very easy to understand. Yep. In context, we know that the author of Hebrews was not describing things that belong to salvation. But now he's he's talking to the Hebrews, and he's, pr- he's confident that the Hebrews he's writing to are Christians. Beloved, he says. You know, we have a, you know, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. So that is that is actually the, the biggest problem text in all of Scripture on this issue. That... W- most people say is their biggest problem text and we see that if you just look at the context if you don't do what this guy did in this article or his this you know this email he sent to this other guy uh if you don't just take you know sentences at face value but you look at the context they'll be pretty much cleared Mm up yeah and you know again you have to use the bible to interpret the bible yep you know and um you know very 
I mean, like we talked about, the word enlightened is used here, not the word justified or saved. Right. Or born again. Right. You know, which are all words that the, or regenerated. Right. Which are all words that the New Testament authors use to describe salvation. Yep. Um, never do they use the word enlightened to describe salvation. Never. No. Uh, enlightened here carries with it the idea that the gospel was shared with somebody. Yeah. They were taught biblical truth. Yeah. They were enlightened to the truth. Right. But they didn't have a heart change to accept it. Right. And that's the thing. There's so many people that we interact with that fill our churches that we know, that we know they know that this is true. But intellectual assent or intellectual belief is not the mark, the only mark of salvation. Like, if I just intellectually believe in Jesus and that all this stuff is true, that's not what saves me. Right. It's a heart change that happens by the Spirit of God. And a part of that certainly is that you believe these things to be true. But somebody who believes these things to be true still might not be saved. So they can be enlightened to these realities. And then they can live according to them as well. Somebody who who is enlightened to the truthfulness of of the fact that sex before marriage is destructive and bad and that it actually hurts your life, if they live that way, it will actually, in some sense, benefit their life. Like, they're enlightened to that reality. Yep. Okay, we're going to go to the other one. He mentions it. Uh, I'm going to go out of order on how he lists them, but Second Peter 2, 20 through 22. Uh, again, context is everything. And in the context of Second Peter, where this passage, this problem passage happens to be placed, is in the context of false prophets and teachers. So Peter's been talking about false prophets and teachers um, for a while before he gets to this, this one passage, or this one text that people think is a problem. So I'm going to pick up in verse 17. And the problem passage is, is in verse 20 through 22. So again... Context, he's talking about false prophets and false teachers. These are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them to never have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire. Again, very much like the Hebrews 6 one, the language used isn't salvation languaged, language. Right. There, nowhere do we see justified. Nowhere do we say, see saved. Nowhere do we see has, has gained eternal life or had eternal life. It's just like the parable of the sower. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, um, that was the image that I got here of, you know, the, the one that sprouts quickly but then gets choked out. Yeah. I mean, think about this. So, for starting verse 24, if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, again, 
living according to what scripture tells somebody tells you is is going to help you it's going to allow you to escape certain defilements of the world mm-hmm. certain things that you shouldn't do that you weren't designed for yep. the body was not like paul says in first corinthians 6 the body is not meant for sexual immorality it's meant for the lord and the lord for the body whether that body is a body of a non-believer or a believer the body was designed by god for him, not for sexual immorality. So, if you're a non-believer and you read that in Scripture, and you say, hey, maybe I shouldn't have sex before marriage, you will have escaped the defilement of the world. But that has nothing to do with salvation. Right. You're not saved because you didn't commit sexual immorality. Mm-hmm. You're just doing something right because you read it in the Bible. Yeah. I mean, good for you will allow right. you to to live a more, uh, I don't want to, I don't know what you would say, healthy. healthy life on earth, certainly. Just like if you're a non-believer and you're married, not uh, committing adultery on your spouse, well, it's a good thing. It will bring you better happiness in your yeah. marriage. Yeah. yeah, like, come on, like, absolutely. And so nowhere again do we see salvation language. So then we're so basically what Peter is describing is a person that has interacted with the scriptures or has a, a an understanding of 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 the commandments of God and for some sense kind of starts to live according to him and escape some of the defilement of the world but then he says but if they uh they are again again but if they are again entangled in them and overcome, so again, they've, okay, let's say they've escaped sexual immorality, but now they're entangled in it. They go back to sexual immorality, or now they do it. Uh, the last state has become worse for them than the first. So. Yeah, because now they know what they're doing is wrong right. according to the law of God. Right. But it's also harder for them to come back again. Yeah, because what happens is the, this person has experienced the i'll use the word blessing the blessing of living in accordance to how god has designed them and the world which is healthy for them as a as a being as a human being made in the image of god they sh- they should live according to that design if i use a glass pot as a hammer it's going to break it's not designed for that. It's designed to be put on a table and maybe put some flowers in it or some water in it. It's not designed to be a hammer. So if your body, which is designed by God, is not meant for sexual morality, then if you commit sexual morality, it's going to hurt your body. It's going to hurt you. So when you have lived according to that design and have experienced the blessing or the health of it or how it's good... And then decide, no, I still want sexual immorality and go to that instead. It's just going to make it that much harder, as he's saying, to go back. Yep. You're worse than you were before. Yep. That's what it's saying. It's not saying anything about salvation. Nothing about salvation here. Right. You know, what the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow, sow after washing herself, returns to the wallow in the mire. Again, no salvation words. If we just look at context, we realize that's not the case. Yep. Okay. We've done 
three-ish passages. There's <laughs> so many more. Some of these are atrocious, though. This guy's list is like, some of them have nothing to do with this topic at all. Uh, like, this is the first one on his list. Matthew 6.15. And I'm just going to quick turn there. And okay. p- please just bear with me here. If this makes you think that you can lose your salvation, then I don't know what's going on with your ability to interpret words. Okay, 6.15 says this. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. Apparently, he sees this. If you read it face value, it means you can lose your salvation. Yeah, I mean, but that's not at all what that passage is talking about. Yeah, that's what I thought. Um, I, I, I mean, first of all... Contextually, it's right after the Lord's Prayer. Right. So <laughs> so th- there's that. Um, I think we need to understand a few things. Uh, the Lord's Prayer specifically talks about forgiveness, right? Yeah. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Yeah. Um, so uh, that's where the the context fits in there. Um, and so Jesus is instructing us to pray and ask God to forgive us as we forgive those who've who've sinned against us. And so in that prayer, we're asking for God's help yeah. in forgiving others. Yeah. Um, and all Christians should have a heart of forgiveness. Uh, but again, yeah, salvation can't be lost. There is no condemnation. Right. Um, so what that passage is actually saying is that it's a mark of an unbeliever. Right. If you are unforgiving of other people. Yeah, exactly. It's giving us an evidence of somebody who's not a believer, not mm-hmm. telling us that you're, you once were saved, but now if you decide no longer to forgive right. people— that you're going to lose your salvation. Yeah, the regenerate There's nowhere heart. in there. Nowhere in there can you get that from that. Yeah, the, the regenerate heart will pour out forgiveness because the regenerate heart is so dependent upon it. Yeah, they understand I've been forgiven the most atrocious sins, mm-hmm. and therefore you naturally forgive others. Yeah. And again, we also know that that believers do still sin. So there is still a, a, a presence of sin in their life, but they do not practice sin. So you, there could be a case where at a moment you don't forgive somebody, right. but you then become convicted of that sin because you have this Holy Spirit, and then you repent of it, and then you go and forgive that person. Right. Like, that will happen. And that's where it comes into play again. The person who practices sin has never known the truth. If you practice unforgiveness, you've never known the truth. Mm-hmm. Um. He has some other atrocious passages that have nothing to do with what there's what this topic is. Uh, here's one that he actually did not list. Okay. But I want to mention it because some very notable Arminians, very notable ones, some of them, they, their biggest scholars have used it as uh, an evidence that you can lose your salvation. So this guy has been incorporating texts that if he studied his position, the scholars would say none of those say that but I'll give you some that do. 
Hebrew six is one of them. Mm-hmm. I'll give you. I'll, I'll give him that one. But one that he forgot that the that the big scholars like to use are is in John fifteen. And in John fifteen, we have what we call figurative language, people. Very figurative, symbolic language. Jesus is really drawing a metaphor. A fantastic metaphor that helps us understand things, but we can't take it literally because he starts off John fifteen by saying, "I am the vi- I am the true vine." Is Jesus literally a grapevine? No, no. But we we he's using a metaphor to help us understand that. Then he goes, "And my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. So we are the branches. So I'm not a branch. I know I'm not literally a branch. I'm a person. I'm a human being. I can see myself, and I can look at Adam right now, and he doesn't seem to have any characteristic of a a branch. (laughs) (laughs) But we understand that a branch branch of a vine is totally dependent on the vine to get through it the nourishment to produce fruit. So if a branch is not connected to a vine, we know by our experience of vines and branches and fruit, that it would be impossible for that branch to bear fruit. We get that. So it's a metaphor to help us understand how we need Christ for everything. If we're not connected to Christ, we have no way to get what we need to bear fruit. No way at all. That's why we use figurative language. It helps us understand something in a deeper way. Yep. So not not literally is Jesus a vine, but he is. we can understand him in this sense of like a vine, that he gives us the nourishment, what we need to live the the Christian life and bear fruit. But I'll continue. So every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that he does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. So we have this distinction here, and this is where people get into, start to see this passage as teaching you can lose your salvation. So every branch in me that does not bear fruit, that is the person that they say, that Arminians say, is the person that was once a believer because they are a branch in Christ or in the vine, but now they don't, so he takes it away, so they lose their salvation. But nowhere again should we be able to get that out of there. Uh, That's not what this text is teaching us. It's not teaching us about uh, losing your salvation or not losing your salvation. It's making a distinction of a non-believer and a believer. Right. A believer is one who bears fruit. A non-believer is one that does not bear fruit. Exactly. This 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 metaphor is explaining to us is is, is taking into account every human being on earth, not just professing believers, mm-hmm. but all people. So all people, in you could say in a figurative sense according to this metaphor, and again, you can't take a metaphor all the way to its, you can't take it as far as it could go because then you'll end up in in false teaching. Right. They only go so far to prove a smaller point. All, not all doctrine is encapsulated in this metaphor. It would be impossible to mm-hmm. do that. So, Jesus is mentioning, is in some sense, is talking about all people, and you have two distinctions. You have people that do not bear fruit and people that do bear fruit. The people that do not bear fruit, he he takes away. The Father takes them away. And every branch that does bear fruit, those are the believers he prunes. That it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless it abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. 
Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. So, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. So that's a depiction of hell. So, again, nowhere in there do we see a teaching that you can lose your salvation, but we do see that there are branches that bear fruit and don't bear fruit. The branches that don't bear fruit were never they were never truly abiding in Christ, so they were never getting that that life, that righteousness, that salvation through him. Uh, they never bore fruit at all. Mm-hmm. So they never ever ever had an evidence of being saved. Yeah. Th- if this was a teaching that somebody could lose their salvation, it would say in a branch that bore fruit but now no longer bears fruit is taken away. Right. No, it said they never bore fruit. Mm-hmm. So those are the people that are not believers. They're the non-elect. Mm-hmm. And they're taken away and they're thrown into the, into the fire and burned. Yeah. That's hell. That's what we get from it. We don't get this idea that you can lose your salvation. You'd have to, you have to misconstrue this. Yeah, and, you know, um, Paul uses a similar metaphor in Romans 11 where he compares all of Israel to an olive tree. Yeah. You should read that. And um or talk about it, I guess you are. <laughs> yeah, um he he compares all of Israel to an olive tree uh and talks about how uh well, I yeah, I guess I can turn to it real quick because uh it's it's very evident that he's talking about non-believers. He actually establishes it right away. So um and this is in chap Romans chapter 11. Um, beginning in verse 13, he says, Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. So there we have the audience of who he's speaking to. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered it, as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. So now Paul enters this metaphor of this tree. Mm-hmm. And the root that he's talking about here would be the law and the prophets. So if the, if the root, the law and the prophets of the, of the Jewish faith, if they are holy, then the branches must be holy. But now he deconstructs this. He goes, but if some of the branches were broken off, and you, the Gentiles although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and are now sharing the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you all remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. So right here he states that our holiness is coming from God, not from the people who decide to be holy. Um so then he goes on to say, then you will then, then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Well, that is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. 
for God has the power to graft him in again. So it, what, what? So Paul is using this metaphor again of you have all of Israel, every Israelite who's ever lived is part of this tree, and the unbelieving of Israel get broken off yeah. to allow room. Again, this is a metaphor. It's a metaphor. To allow room for the Gentiles to come in yeah. and be part of this same tree. Right. Uh, and then he says at the end, well, and if they, if they believe, if those who are broken off suddenly come to belief, then they, then they too can be grafted back into this tree. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's not, and again, like, look at how many times Paul is saying if, if, if in this, in this yeah. statement, you know, yeah. I mean, it's a, he's posing an argument. Uh, he's using this metaphor for the sake of an argument, yep. you know, not as a teaching that you can um, lose your salvation. Right. You know, he's saying, what if you decided that you were a non-believer? Right. Well, uh, Another one that this guy lists, and he, he listed in one of his paragraphs, because he says, he seems to think this one was very convincing. He goes, in a chilling reminder of the possibility of losing salvation by separating oneself from Christ, Paul says, I drive my body and train it for fear that after having preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. 1 Corinthians nine twenty seven. Nowhere is that talking about losing your salvation. Here we're talking about, Paul's talking about sanctification, disciplining yourself for the sake of godliness. Like, in the Christian life, we work out our salvation because we have been saved, now we get to co-labor with God in, in being more obedient, becoming like Christ, killing our old self, putting off that old self, putting to death those old desires and putting on this new self and and becoming more like Christ. That's sanctification. I, I don't have that passage pulled up in front of me, but I, I would imagine that that passage, when Paul talks about becoming disqualified, uh, after, directly after talking about preaching the gospel, it, it would be becoming disqualified from preaching. Exactly. That's what he's saying, and that's the point. So, do you not know that in the race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do not. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So an apostle, a preacher, a teacher, a shepherd... Those, the leaders, our elders, our overseers, our pastors, they're held to a higher standard, a higher standard, a higher standard of holiness, holy conduct, uh, living a certain way that's more pure and more godly than your average layperson. And so he's saying here that I discipline my body, I discipline myself, and and control my urges and my desires so that I am not disqualified from preaching and teaching that's what he's saying he has mm-hmm. this has nothing to do with losing your salvation yeah. but this guy seems to think it does because he says a chilling reminder like my goodness this has nothing to do with that mm-hmm. he obviously doesn't have an understanding of the rest of scripture right it's hard for him to take into account other passages that are have some parallel teachings on this um because we have lists of the qualifications to be an elder or to be an overseer, to be a pastor. We have scriptures that says that teachers are held to a higher standard. 
Mm-hmm. So that would help us or inform us into understanding that this fits with that. Um, that's why it's important to read all of your Bible and right. not just certain parts. Uh, I mean, there's others he listed, but those are the biggest ones. Like the Hebrews one, the the Peter one, and the John 15 one, I think are the biggest that I know of that the, the real scholars, the real people that write the books on Arminianism are the one. They're, those are the ones they really go to. Well, should we look at the two biggest supports then? Yeah, we haven't even talked about them yet. So in our first one, we did all these proofs, proof texts, but then we left the big shebang for after this yeah. one because it's... Well, and, and there's two, really. Okay, yeah, let's go to it. So uh, the first one is is First Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Interesting and, that this is, you know... Peter, who Peter and right. Paul, who apparently have been writing these things that say you can lose your salvation, are <laughs> yeah. going to go back to them. <laughs> so, I'll I'll read the text here. Uh, there's a lot that we've already talked about within these doctrines in these short six passages. But uh, so, First Peter one, starting in verse verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice... Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Listen to listen to the words here, like verse four. If you like, if you're a highlighter, highlight verse four to an inheritance that is imperishable, yeah, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded. Through faith, so it is God that is guarding you through faith. God is guarding your faith. God is guarding you through your own faith, uh, ready uh, for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last day. Yeah. Hmm. I mean that. That's it. That's. Yeah. Uh, and then and then he Peter talks about trials. Yeah, you may experience some trials, but in the end. Uh, you may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Yeah, clear. I mean, that that's that that speaks very clearly to uh, th- this. This language is is so so strong. Yep. In this. Yep. Uh, do you have any other thoughts on that one? Not on that one. I love it. <laughs> that's my thought. Um. So I, some people describe that as the biggest defense 
uh, for uh, for the perseverance of the saints. Um, I tend to think that Romans eight has the clearest. I think so. Um, and we've mentioned even Romans the breadth of all of Romans eight. Yeah, you know we've Very mentioned clear. Romans eight a number of times. Romans eight one. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Right. Okay. So God is the one that is acting here. Um, And then we continue through and we talk about um, it being heirs with Christ. We talked about adoption. You want to talk a little bit about the adoption that's mentioned? Oh, oh yeah, yeah. 15? So you just have to read all of chapter 8. I'm not, I'm not talking to us. I'm talking to you who is listening to this. <laughs> and just listen to, yeah, how much assurance of salvation, perseverance of the saints comes through in this. It's a beautiful chapter. If anything, it should be memorized and stored up in your heart. But we get to a point where, you know, we're, we're down, and I'll start in verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For you, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if the Spirit, by Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For he did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, as the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, and heirs of God and fellow heirs in Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So, I mean, this beautiful reality, this is true reality, that if you are saved, you are adopted into the family of God and you become a son or a daughter of God. That is an amazing thing. The doctrine of adoption is beautiful. And we can cry out, Abba, Father. Like, we cry out to God our Father as our father as our actual father he is our father and our the spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of god and if children then heirs and if heirs of god then fellow heirs with christ so there is this reality like we have a hope in a in a time to come when we will inherit what we're an heir to the kingdom of god and, and that's to come so the context in context historical context hermeneutical principles Paul wrote the book of Romans, obviously in the first century, to the church in Rome, so to Gentiles and Jews and Christians living in Rome. So, there is a, a historical understanding of adoption during that time. So we understand, understand adoption uh, in, in a way that that is, you could say, uh, conditioned by our culture. How we understand adoption is, is like how adoption is in our culture. You know, if that makes sense. So, in the time of the Romans, in the Roman time, when Paul was writing this, a father could disown his biological son, disown him, and make him no longer his son, and he would not be an heir to his to whatever he had. He could disown his biological son. But if a man were to adopt a son who was not his biological son, but choose to adopt him, by Roman law, he could not disown him. He could disown his biological son, but he could not, 
by Roman law, disown a son that he had chose to adopt it. Couldn't do it. Illegal. Huge penalty. Couldn't do it. And this son was an heir to everything that father had, even though he was not biological. He was an heir to everything he had. Couldn't be disowned. It was certain. Does that make sense? Like, like hear me. If he chose to adopt him, and if a son is an heir to everything the father has, and if by Roman law you can't disown a son you adopt, then automatically at that point of adoption, you are guaranteed your inheritance. Guaranteed it. It's guaranteed. So that is the context that Paul is writing this in to the Romans. They would have understood this, this doctrine of adoption, in a very real sense that if we are children of God and we can cry out, Abba, Father, and the Spirit in us bears witness to our spirit that we are children of God and children and heirs, then this is for sure, that there is no way we could lose this. That is an amazing reality. Amazing. Mm-hmm. And that's not even like the most amazing part of the of the chapter, I don't right. think. <laughs> yep. So he, here we go. Uh, this is the famous portion of the chapter. Um, and I'm going to read a little bit of what we've already talked about, and then we're going to really dissect the end. So um, down in verse 28, so Paul continues from where Sam left off, talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 28 says, And we know that for those who love God, All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We've talked about that. Yeah. But we haven't really talked about the glorified part yet. Yeah. Uh, But then I, I, I read that so that you can get this in mind because this is where Paul's coming from so he all that stuff that we've already talked about over these last several um, episodes as we've dissected these doctrines of grace and we focused so much on Romans 8 29 and 30 Paul goes on to ask a question in verse 31 what then shall we say to these things if God is for us who can be against us He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So who is to condemn? So I'm going to pause there for a minute because Paul's asking a lot of questions. Yeah. So he's saying, what's, what's there to say to this? You know, as we've called it, the golden chain. What 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 is there to say about about all of these things? Uh, if God is for us, who can be against us? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is obviously nobody. Yeah. And then he goes on to do an argument um, that was common in uh, in the time of arguing from the lesser to the, gr- or, the greater to the lesser. To, yeah, sorry, yep. from the greater to the lesser. So he's he says, look. He didn't spare his own son. He gave up his son for all of us. So why won't he then graciously give us all things? Yeah. He already sacrificed his son for us. Yeah. It's not like he's going to— I, I already poured out my wrath on my son for yep. your sin. Yeah. He's he's not going to then turn around and say, well, I sacrificed my son for you, but no, nah, you're out now. Right. No, it's already done. That's what Paul is saying right. here. And then 
Paul goes on to say, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So, so Paul is asking this question, and this is the central question to this. Uh, so, so we're saved, and who shall bring a charge, any charge, against God's elect? That, that is the question, because it, it's God who justifies. God has already justified us. So who is left to condemn? That's verse 34. Who is to condemn? And then Paul is going to answer the question. Yeah. Um, so the first person, the first hypothetical is, well, Christ, Christ Jesus could condemn us. He, he's the one who saved us. Yeah. He gave himself up. So could Christ Jesus condemn us? And Paul says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Right. So so Christ won't do it. That's what Paul is saying here. Christ won't condemn us. Uh, answering Again, answering the question in verse 34. Christ won't condemn us uh, because Christ is interceding for us. So then Paul says, well, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to the to be slaughtered. So Paul lists all of these things in verse thirty-five: tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. By the way, Paul faced all of these things in his life. Yeah, he did. Okay, so uh, not so not only is uh, is this. Um, is, is he listing all of these things that, like, these are all external things, right? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Uh, these are all these external life world factors that could that could do it. So could we face any kind of tribulation or any kind of distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or even, even weapons? Uh, could any of those separate us from the love of Christ? And in verse 37, he says, no. And all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So right there we have, there's there's nothing external that can separate us from the love of Christ. Mm -hmm. So then he goes on to say, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation— will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Right. That's a nice little neat bow wrapped up this, yeah. like... I mean, that's that's everything. Man. That's angels, demons. I mean, there is nobody to condemn. The only person who has power to condemn is Jesus Christ, who is who is not only promised not to do it, but he's actually doing the exact opposite. Right. He's interceding for us. And at this point, he has already died for you. Yeah. He took on your sin. He faced the punishment. It's done. He yep. felt it already. It's finished. Yep. Why would he then... What? Like, it doesn't... It, it's incoherent. Even to think about the possibility of somebody who was truly saved and justified for them to lose their salvation does not fit with anything in Scripture. It doesn't make sense. Right doesn't make any sense at all yeah and so when you combine that with with the first peter passage god is guarding your faith and has and is guarding it for you yep and none of these things 
will stop Christ from loving you. Right. It's amazing. Really is amazing. Yep. And really, like with within verse 35, none of these things will bring you to a point because of what First Peter t- yeah. teaches us. None of these things will bring you to a point where you could break your love of Christ because Christ isn't, they can't separate. And, and the Spirit is in you and has sealed you. Yep. Sealed you. Like, absolutely sealed you. Yeah, and let me let me be clear because, you know, some people say, well, what about Satan? Satan accuses us. Well, okay, so Satan stands at the throne of God accusing us. Yeah. But Christ is interceding for us. Yes. But also, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation. Nothing. Nothing. So the, the point is, is, like, you can just imagine Satan saying, look at Sam. Look at what he just did. Look at the sin he just did. Real time. Christ says, interceding, uh, actually, Satan, that sin that he just did 2,000 years ago, I've, I took that on myself, and I faced a holy wrath for it. Yep. There's no condemnation for him anymore. I felt that. I took that. I justified him. I gave him my righteousness. I did these things. So you have nothing, Satan, against him. Or against anybody who's an elect. And notice again how here's here's something to take into account and then we'll wrap it up because we're about over an hour now. When you are looking for okay, the topic of can you lose your salvation? It's a topic on salvation. Therefore, we need to look at texts that speak about salvation or use salvation words. So again, the texts that we said were problem passages that turned out not to be problem passages, we saw that they did not use any salvation lingo. Here we have an explicit passage that teaches us that you can't lose your salvation using salvation lingo. He uses the word justified in here. Mm-hmm. And justified is always a salvation term. Always. Never in any of those problem passages did we ever see the word justified, nor saved, nor any of those other salvation words. Here we see a ton of salvation words. And every other text that we see that is very explicit, you can't lose your salvation, uh, uses salvation lingo. So that's the point. If you want to prove something, you have, you have to prove it with a text that is talking about that thing. So if you want to look for texts that can prove or, you know, are about losing or not losing your salvation, then the text has to talk about salvation. (laughs) And this one does. Yeah. So it's very clear. Yeah, and and let it bring hope to you. I mean, this passage at the end of Romans 8 should bring endless amounts of hope to you. If you you know somebody that you— you believe is truly saved, but they, for one reason or another, are not there now. Uh, you know, they're, they're not going to a church or, you know, they, they're they angry at God uh, or anything. It, it could be that that they weren't ever saved, or it could be that God will bring them back. And Because nothing that we do and nothing in this world can separate us from Christ's right. love. 
I think I think it can be dangerous to try to interpret somebody's salvation. Absolutely. Um I think primarily this text is for you as an individual. I can examine my heart mm-hmm. and I can see that the spirit bears witness with my spirit that I'm a child of God. Therefore, I know that I have no condemnation that this applies to me. It's really hard to look at somebody else and yeah. see the spirit in them. So there's other evidences, certainly, for somebody else's salvation. But primarily, this this Romans 8 chapter as a whole is should, if you are a believer, give you yeah. great assurance. Should That's a much better way to say it. Yeah. And... It's amazing. This is one of the best doctrines there is. Like, this is unbelievable. Right. I can't even, like, you, I mean, it should make you speechless. Why would you want to believe that the contrary is possible? Oh. Not only is it not in the scriptures, but it would, like we said earlier, your life would be a life of, of, of. Of terror. Of terror. Horrible. Man. Oh, I just don't even know what to think about it. I mean, good. Nothing grief. can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. Unfortunately, some people have have taken this this passage out of context to believe to support universalism. <laughs> which, <Yeah. laughs> which again, out of context, because clearly he's talking about children of God who have been justified, right. and those who are in the spirit, not in the flesh. Paul's well, already said I mean, that the, those in the who flesh... Shall, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Elect. In the passage. Yeah, elect. Okay, so please don't come at me or come at anybody saying that this teaches in universalism because it clearly right. does not. It also does not teach that you can just go on sinning, by the way. Exactly. That's not what this passage is teaching. This passage is trying to impart in you a peace. Yes, and a hope. Yeah. That, and an assurance. That, yeah, you're, you might mess up. You will mess up. Yep. Uh, and you will have bad days in your walk with God, but Christ is interceding for you, right? And there's nothing that can stop Christ from doing that, and there's nothing that can stop Christ from loving you. Exactly, because your salvation isn't dependent on you; it's dependent on God. And praise God that it is. Yep. So we'll end it there on our well on our discussion of perseverance of the saints but also on our discussion of the doctrines of grace perfect place to end yeah and i'm i'm assuming that if we continue to do this podcast which we totally plan on continuing to do this (laughs) as long as we have breath in our lungs and we're allowed (laughs) uh we'll probably be talking about the doctrines of grace again in some way Mm -hmm. because they are involved in a lot of a lot of other doctrines and a lot of other discussions so yeah this will not be the last time we talk about the perseverance of the saints. But for now, we're wrapping it up. So hopefully you learned something or enjoyed listening to us. Uh, I, w- I, like, I want to say, like, I mean, we, we want people to embrace these truths. You know, preach and persuade. We want to preach the truth. We want to persuade people to the truth. And we want people to hear the truth. I have no power in myself to change anybody's heart at all, but the Word of God does. And we have tried to saturate these podcasts with Scripture as much as we can. And and the Word of God in and of itself is powerful. God uses His very Word 
to fulfill his purposes. The word of God does not come back to us void. So I want to say, like, if, if, if this podcast at all or any of our episodes or anything at all has helped you in some way or you've been encouraged by or you've learned something or you just maybe you disagree with everything you say but you somewhat enjoy listening to our voices <laughs> which i don't think is the case but could be i i i really would ask you to share it with somebody um yeah share it with somebody you can find this podcast on obviously if you're listening to it you found it somewhere but you can find it on any of the the major podcasting apps apple podcasts itunes spotify google podcasts on any of them so if you if you enjoy it or if you're encouraged by it, if you're learning something, I encourage you to to share it with somebody or recommend it to somebody if they're wondering about doctrines of Calvinism or Arminianism or any of the things that we talk about. Just send it to somebody else. Mm-hmm. I think that'd be cool because we don't do this so that nobody hears us. <laughs> right. <laughs> I guess we, we. I guess anybody creates a podcast to have people listen. So hopefully, if you're listening, you could be a person that. You know, maybe being evangelist for the Preacher and Persuade podcast. Now I'm sounding a little bit conceited. I don't know. <laughs> okay, I'm going to shut up. Okay, but thanks for listening. Bye.